Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and this is the Podcast Revolution Z. It's the 39th episode. It's actually the seventh session trying to convey the dialogue and visuals of the screenplay Next American Revolution. As six sessions have gone before, imagine you are sitting in a theater, watching the big screen midway through the film. The scene is Lydia Luxemburg's living room, where Miguel Guevara queries Lydia Luxemburg, 93, still dressed like 40. A poster of Noam Chomsky giving a talk, and one of Bob Dylan and Joan Baez singing together at Woodstock. Look on. Miguel Guevara asks, Lydia, how did you become radical? Lydia Luxemburg answers, In college, in the 1960s, I got caught up in the politics of the times. I hated violence in Indochina. I hated sexism in society and in the left itself. I rejected women being targets to bomb, icons to rape, ornaments to parade, or servants to do tasks men wished to avoid. Guevara asks, But you were in position to be a beneficiary of wealth and power, not a victim. Why didn't you grab what you could? Luxembourg answers, I am not the best self-analyst around, but I would say it was partly moral outrage and partly a sense of solidarity with others. I remember feeling more at one with the Vietnamese and with Mississippi blacks than with the New York jet set. The 60s birthed a set of communal rather than loner attitudes and desires. The wealth and power we were supposed to sell out for repulsed me. Activism attracted me. Imagine a vegetarian offered a year's supply of steaks to ignore the hunger others were suffering. The bribe would be no bribe at all. The truth is, I did grab what I wanted. Not money. Not prestige. Self-respect. Guevara asks, When RPS was emerging, you were 50 years into a lifetime of activism. Did you feel vindicated? Luxembourg replies, I felt some of us knew what was needed 50 years earlier. I was ecstatic it was happening, but I was tormented by how many lives were diminished by my not communicating better earlier. Guevara asks, What ideas attracted you to RPS? Luxembourg replies, Before RPS, I looked at the world through a filter that highlighted certain relations but blurred others. I saw gender permeating workplaces, but I didn't see class and race permeating families. RPS's holistic demand to equally highlight all of life's defining parts felt false. I feared if we didn't elevate kinship above the rest, sexist men would peripheralize women. Later, I realized RPS was adding more focuses without diminishing mine. The scene changes to an auditorium where you see young Lydia Luxemburg speak to an audience. She says, Life is four-sided. Economics affects politics, race, and gender. Politics affects race, gender, and economics. Race affects economics, politics, and gender. Gender affects economics, politics, and race. It may sound mantra-like, but to over-elevate any particular side of life risks missing much about the other three sides. An audience member interrupts. Come on, we can tell what's more or less important. Young Lydia Luxembourg responds. No, over-elevating one side addresses that one, race, class, politics, or gender, but in ways alienating people more affected by other focuses. It pits constituencies against one another. The audience member says, surely we can avoid that. Young Luxembourg answers. Can we? Have we? Imagine we have a slippery, heavy object to move. Various teams grab hold. Each team has a part of the hold that it most wants to move and that it can tug better than it can tug any other part. Each team grabs its part without noticing or even while denigrating what other teams are doing. 
Instead of all the teams moving all the parts in concert and the whole object going where they together intend, the teams pull and push at odds with each other, and the whole object moves a bit here and a bit there, but never far in any one direction. The scene shifts to Lydia's living room, where the interview continues. Miguel Guevara asks, What was the second RPS innovation that attracted you? Lydia Luxemburg responds, To be in an economy, you have to work, buy, and sell. To be in a religion, you have to relate to its church or other structures. To be in a family, you have to be a mother, father, brother, or sister. In other words, to benefit from any institution, you have to comply with whatever roles define that institution. If you are a nurse, a congressperson, a priest, a bricklegger, a short-order cook, a teacher, a journalist, or a mayor, to gain benefits, you have to behave consistent with your role in the institutions you navigate. Oppressive institutions oppress. Corrupt institutions corrupt. To get along, we do what our situations require and then most often become what we do. This is true in families, in a mall, in church, prison, government, corporations, military, media, or even a criminal cartel. The scene shifts to a classroom where young Lydia Luxemburg teaches a class. She says, To evaluate a workplace, family, or government, we have to reveal people's roles in that institution. What do the roles demand? Who do the roles cause us to become? What roles block our lives? What new roles would advance our lives? What can we fight for to move nearer our goals and prepare to win still more? The scene shifts to Lydia's living room with the interview continues. Lydia Luxemburg says, Early in RPS, I visited a worker-run glass factory in Cleveland. Workers bemoaned their new circumstances deteriorating back toward what they earlier knew. The scene shifts to a glass factory, where you see young Lydia Luxemburg talk with a group of workers. A Latin glass worker near tears says, We set up a workers' council to have decision-making by everyone involved. We equalized wages. We practiced mutual support. A year passed, and in recent weeks, few have attended our council meetings. Wage differences are returning. Engaging work is reverting to boring drudgery. A second glass worker continues, All the old crap is coming back. It feels like there is no alternative to enduring the drudgery we thought we were escaping. Before he left, a manager called me naive. He told me that the inequalities and hierarchies that I opposed were part of being human. He said, face it, you are who you are. Your joy at taking over the workplace will evaporate into failure. I laughed at him, but now I fear he was right. Young Lydia Luxemburg says, when you took over your workplace, did you leave most people doing overwhelmingly rote, repetitive, and disempowering tasks, while others did mostly empowering tasks? The second glass worker answers, yes, of course. Young Luxembourg replies, Human nature isn't bringing back old ills. An unchanged division of labor is the culprit. You all grew up in working-class neighborhoods. You had little formal education. Upon occupying your factory, most of you wound up with assembly work, while a few wound up with daily decision-making and other empowering tasks. Some of you became rulers, while others remained ruled. Some became a coordinator class, while others remained working class. Your ensuing experience wasn't written in your DNA. It flowed from retaining old roles. Folks who got empowering tasks as time passed saw themselves as deserving more income and better conditions. Folks who got disempowering tasks as time passed became resigned to less income and worse conditions. That's the old crap coming back due to never rejecting the old division of labor. 
The scene returns to Lydia's living room, where the interview continues. Lydia Luxemburg says, Activists didn't need years of study to see the situation, but it's very simplicity ran afoul of left academics. Miguel Guevara queries, Come on, they didn't like that it was simple? That's sad, but familiar. Lydia Luxemburg answers, For RPS members to speak plainly and advocate simple insights upset left academics who routinely worked hard to use long sentences and obscure words. It may sound perverse, but after a time we realize that when your status, income, and power spring from having a monopoly on empowering circumstances, defending your status, income, and power depends on making sure your information and skills remain inaccessible to people beneath you. Guevara says, Academics didn't like spreading skills, Luxembourg clarifies. They didn't like us criticizing their monopolizing, empowering work, and that included not liking or demystifying the verbal jibber-jabber that justified their doing so. Nonetheless, regardless of academics attacking us, our simple ideas were not only accessible, they were intensely practical. It was a long battle with earlier origins, but a simple lesson gained ground. If you don't pay close attention to choices about institutions and roles, some seemingly inevitable choice you take for granted can subvert your best intentions. Retaining the old division of labor was just such a choice. That lesson forever affected me. The scene shifts to a ball field where Miguel Guevara queries Peter Cabral, 64, an anti-racist organizer, prison organizer, and ex-professional ball player. Miguel Guevara asks, Peter, do you remember your radicalization? Peter Cabral answers, As a boy, I lived with needles and guns. Gangs promised income and protected. I joined. A drive-by shooting killed a friend of mine. After that, I visited relatives in jail, witnessed a few trials. Life was an incarceration parade. I got arrested, but it wasn't anger at my wrongful jail term that made me political. It was that for the guards and owners, prison was about control and profit. For inmates, prison was about surviving and becoming a more effective criminal. Prison taught crime. Rhetoric about prison I previously ignored became a reality I lived. I could accept my lot as a criminal and make the best of it, or I could reject my lot and find a different road. I rejected and ran from crime toward activism. The scene shifts to prison, where you see prisoners gather and talk. Young Peter Cabral, 42, in prison, listens, and you hear Peter Cabral's voice over the visual. I attended a meeting in the prison yard with a friend. I met new people. I was provoked. I went to another meeting. It took time to overcome old habits. I had been arrested on trumped-up charges when I was about to enter the big leagues, and after six years, my incarceration was overturned. I knew many innocents jailed on trumped-up charges or due to bureaucratic pressure, to racism, and to laws that punish victimless crimes. You see a visual montage of prison life. You see prisoners endure confinement. You see young Peter Cabral organized in the prison yard. You see prisoners on strike. You see prisoners repressed by guards. You hear Peter Cabral's voice over the visuals. He says, Entering prison, I had TV and gossip-induced expectations. I quickly realized plenty of inmates were innocent or over-sentenced. I fought to survive. I learned to relate and navigate. I made friends with people who saw what I saw. We built our numbers. We shared texts. We corresponded with inmates in other prisons about our experience and theirs. By 2024, we didn't have much idea what it could achieve, but we called a one-day strike. We were surprised by the enormous participation.
Young Peter Cabral addresses prisoners. We work at command. We anticipate repression. We earn subsistence. Our every breath is overseen. Why not strike for a living wage? Why not strike to participate in the decisions that affect us? Why not strike to improve our current lives? Why not strike to win changes, to prepare for outside by developing citizen-needed habits? The scene shifts back to the ball field where the interview continues. Peter Cabral says, We challenge the behavior of guards and the rules for visiting and for our having books and Internet access. We demanded our own classes and sought good wages, conditions, and other rights. It wasn't easy talking with inmates whose mindsets were cautious, hostile, and violent. It wasn't easy diminishing racial hostility. Nonetheless, our strike spread to other prisons and attracted enormous outside support. Corvara asks, Why couldn't the prison silence you? Cabral answers, It wasn't that the guards couldn't brutalize us into submission. They could, and they did, often. Our success was that we didn't fight back. Our restraint not only won us tremendous support from outside, it limited the violence. We would back off, seemingly lose, and within days be back on strike. Like Cool Hand Luke, a prison favorite, we got knocked down. Like in the movie Cool Hand Luke, a prison favorite, we got knocked down, but then we got back up over and over. But we took Luke one better. We didn't individually heroically escape our hell only to be repeatedly hauled back. We collectively repeatedly attacked our hell, so in the end there would be no hell to haul anyone back to. Guevara asks, Can I ask, do you miss baseball? Cabral answers, In a better world, but I am in this one. And you, soccer? Guevara answers, Yes, I miss it. I watch a lot. Which I hope you will agree brings us to a good spot to pause before continuing next week. Next episode we will continue discussing community cultural vision with our guest Justin Poder. And so, this is Michael Albert signing off for now for Revolution Z.